Don't shoot the deputies. Hello and welcome to Don't Shoot the Deputies, a podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I caught up with Daisy Christodoulou for a chat about comparative judgment, an alternative way of assessing writing than perhaps is conventional in most schools. Hi, Steve. Life got a bit in the way of you being able to join that conversation, didn't it? Hello, Russell, and welcome to our listeners. Uh, it certainly did, Russell. My little one was really poorly at the time, but thankfully all is fine now. Yes, having listened back to your interview with Daisy, it's full of great insights about comparative judgment. Should we let our listeners have a listen to the interview and perhaps we can have a catch up after Russell? Perfect. Well, I don't know about everyone listening, but when I was a class teacher, writing assessment was possibly one of my least enjoyable jobs. It took ages. And on top of that, I never really trusted the process, if I'm honest. And as an assessment lead for many years now, I've been round the houses trying to find systems that are both reliable and manageable for teacher workloads. So today's episode is about exploring a different way of doing things and should be great for any teachers or leaders who are considering a change of direction when it comes to their writing assessment methods. And I'm joined by the brilliant Daisy Christodoulou, who is going to help me out with this problem. Welcome back to our podcast, Daisy. Great. Looking forward to chatting with you, Russell. Fantastic. It's great to have you on again. So I mentioned that assessing writing didn't used to necessarily be my favourite thing when I was a class teacher. Can you outline for me what you see as some of the issues associated with traditional forms of assessing writing and why these bothered you enough for you want to sort of propose an alternative? Yeah, sure. So um, I think, as you just said, uh, one of the major problems is the time. So I think one major problem with traditional writing assessment and moderation is very time consuming and not just the marking of it, but as I say, the moderation. So step one, you've got to go through as a teacher and mark everything and uh, give it a grade or a number. And then step two is taking things forward to a moderation session. And then often then step three is then translating the findings from that moderation session back to, to everything. So that's very time consuming. Um, and also, even though you go through all that time and it takes such a lot of time, um, actually, the process is not very reliable. And I think you said that as well, like your experience of it. You never quite felt happy with what you were getting from it. And that was certainly my experience. In my background, I was a secondary English teacher. But I think that process and moderation very similar at primary and at secondary. Mm. And even when you go through all of that process, how confident are you in the end that everybody has you know, consistently applied uh, the mark scheme in exactly the same way and, and sometimes I think people think this is a problem of getting different teachers to agree and that's certainly part of the problem but I think also when you dig into it further what you realise is it's not just about getting different people to agree it's actually really hard to get the same person to agree with themselves at different points in time <laughs> <laughs> so think of that yourself when you're marking writing that if you mark a piece one day imagine somebody came back to you a week later with the same piece like do you think actually uh, you always give it the same mark over time and there's lots of research on that that shows people don't so I think that, that those two issues the, the efficiency and the reliability are two really pressing issues and I then think there's a third issue, which I kind of put under the heading of validity. But I'm sitting underneath that are, are lots of things to do with the impact that traditional writing marking has on, on classroom practice. So I often felt that rubrics and mark schemes did not have a great impact on teaching and learning. So I think often um, they can lead to a tick box approach to teaching. I think you've seen that a bit with the primary writing frameworks where you know, you have the, the sentence about a shift in formality um, <laughs> and, and a hyphenated, hyphenated words. And you see every story sort of starts with um, uh, what's one of the sort of jokes I see is that uh, every story, the main character is called Daisy May and she's 22 and she works in a play group because you've got the, the hyphenated words. And then maybe you see some speech shoehorned in with the, the word in it, you know, to prove yeah. the shift in formality. So yeah. you see all these um, sort of shoehorned in things to fit. The, the framework and, and I don't think that leads to as I say great pedagogy and, and I used to see that as well actually it's weird you see it at primary I saw it when I was teaching at A level that you would have these assessment objectives that were quite rigid and you could see people sort of telegraphing their response in a paragraph in, in a way that you know didn't really lead to to creating a great essay mm. so um, those are the three things I tend to talk about the, the, the problems kind of with traditional uh, marking traditional writing marking it's uh, the time it takes the inconsistency and the, the the negative impact it has on teaching and learning. Great. And, and and with that one about inconsistency, often when when you have this debate around teacher assessment, people take any criticism very personally because what yeah. they see yeah. is that when you 
question teacher assessment, what you're saying is, oh, you can't be trusted or you're dishonest. But that's not actually what we're saying, is it? There's good evidence around unconscious bias and various other things that affect writing. Can you say a little bit more about those things? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, the, the first thing to say is that it's not about teacher assessment being bad. It's about different types of teacher assessment. So comparative judgment is a form of teacher assessment. It's just different to traditional teacher assessment. Yeah. You know, traditional teacher assessment, the, the one that we're used to with the, 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 the sort of governments, um, you know, the, the writing moderation at primary, uh, what, you, what you have, you know, for, for marking at GCSE level, that form of, 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 of teacher assessment or of marking, you know, there's a couple of problems with it. One is, yeah, the, 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 if, you, if you know students, the unconscious bias can be an issue. Mm. So, so that's an issue. And obviously that's why with exam marking, try to anonymize as much as possible so so when you know the student the unconscious bias can creep in and there's a wealth of evidence on that but even when you don't know the student <laughs> so even when you anonymize it um there's still the issue of inconsistency which is because the method that we use for traditional assessment the best way i think about it is it's a form of absolute judgment mm. and what we know is that regardless you know if you go beyond education beyond assessment uh, not just teachers, human beings in general are really bad at absolute judgment. <laughs> and that's not just true if you're judging essays. It's not just true if you're doing stuff in education. It's true if you're making judgments of things like height, colour, pitch, temperature. We're not very good at making absolute judgments. So this is not about saying, oh, you know, it's teachers being bad at assessment. It's about saying humans are bad at absolute judgment. Right. And let me just be clear what I'm saying, what an absolute judgment is. Imagine, you know, where you are at the minute, the room you're in at the minute. Imagine someone walks into the room you're in and I say to you, how tall is that person? That's an absolute judgment. Imagine two people walk into the room you're in and I say, who's taller, person on the left, person on the right. That's a comparative judgment. So I hope you can see from that that the absolute judgment is just much harder. Mm. You, know, you look at one person and try and say how tall they are. You might get in the ballpark. You're never going to get it right every single time. Mm. Whereas if you look at two people and say who's taller, person on the left, person on the right, that's just much easier. Yeah. So part of the problem with traditional teacher assessment is the unconscious bias you talked about. But another part of the problem is the absolute judgment. You're just looking at one thing and trying to place it on an absolute scale. So the form of teacher assessment we use goes against the grain of the way the human mind works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so what we're trying to do with comparative judgment is say, well, let's have a form of teacher assessment that goes with the grain of the way the human mind works. That's great. And I suppose the issues you're talking about with absolute judgment are kind of exacerbated by often the kind of time constraints and the way we sort of run the process. So I'm thinking so many people listening will imagine those traditional moderation meetings where, you know, it seems in principle really good, particularly if you're getting schools together. You know, we all get together in a hall somewhere, we grab a quick coffee and then we sit down with our three books we've been asked to bring along. And then there's this horrible moment of I've got to question someone I don't know on their judgments and be absolute about that in a space of 20 minutes and then there's going to be a summary and that seems to make the issues even worse. Absolutely and that was totally my experience of traditional moderation too. I, I did a lot of them as a teacher and then when I was working at a multi-academy trust you know running them across a trust and the bit I really liked about them was seeing the work. Mm. You know it was so fascinating to be able to see writing from a range of different contexts. Yeah. So that side of it was so valuable. But as I say, the, the flip side of that is, and I think everyone I've ever spoke to about traditional moderation says this, is those meetings can be very difficult. They can quickly, people get quite defensive mm -hmm. and they can quickly become quite political. And I think sometimes you go into them totally understandably. You, you know the students whose work you bring along and you kind of feel like I, I'm not going to leave the room without the student getting what they deserve. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, you know, it's very awkward if you see other people and you think, well, I'm not sure I agree with that. It feels like you're, you're attacking them to mm. be able to do that. So I think whenever I talk to people about moderation, all those kind of difficult, uh, you know, emotions surface. Again, the great thing about comparative judgment is you just make lots of judgments. Yeah. And almost every single judgment is a silent and anonymous moderation of everybody else's judgments. So you just take so much of the heat and the defensiveness out of it. And, and so that's, you know, one of the, the, the nice things about it. You get to see all of the work just as you would with traditional moderation. But I think without some of those, as I say, quite difficult, quite sort of political sort of conversations that you can end up with. Brilliant. So tell us about the No More Marking website. How did it come about and how does it aim to help schools implement this comparative judgment approach? Yeah. So um, our founder, uh, Dr. Chris Whedon, he actually used to work for, for B exam board. He used to work for, for AQA. He is kind of like a world expert in, in assessment. And the idea of comparative judgment is not a new one. 
It's actually been around since the 1920s. But uh, I guess kind of what we've done is put it into a piece of software and made it very, very easy to use. And as I say, you know, Chris, uh, Dr. Chris Whedon, he, 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 he was, you know, wanted to do that because he saw up close some of the, the problems with traditional marking. And so how it works with comparative judgment is you scan your work in, you upload it to our website, and then you're presented with pairs of, of scripts. So two pieces of writing at a time. And you read them both and you say, which is the better piece of writing? Um, so you don't have a rubric. You just read the two and say, which piece is better? And then you make a series of decisions like that. So you don't, make, you don't make one paired decision, you make several. And your colleagues will join in. And the big national projects we run, where we'll have, uh, you know, maybe 100,000 pupils taking part, we'll have teachers all around the country judging too. So we might have five, 10,000 teachers doing the judgments. So then you've got loads of judgments. And I think, again, in some places we'll have over a million judgments. And then what our website would do is combine all of those judgments together. And it will use all of those judgments to come up with a measurement scale for every piece of writing. And that measurement scale is taking into account the judgments from all of the teachers. So it's quite a sort of democratic way of doing it. You know, everybody's um, judgments are taken into account and we're building a model that will take into account all of those judgments. And what we find when we do that is teachers do agree. Uh, you know, we wouldn't be able to build a model if people weren't agreeing. Mm. If they were just, you know, um, making random decisions and there was no agreement, you, you wouldn't be able to get it. And we can measure the extent of the agreement they get. And we can compare how much they agree using comparative judgment compared to whether they agree using traditional uh, moderation. And with traditional moderation, people really don't agree. <laughs> you get big disagreements. And as I say, it's not just people disagreeing with each other. It's people disagreeing with themselves mm. <laughs> with traditional moderation. OK, this is it. I'm always keen to emphasize that. because I think sometimes people think, well, I have the true standard within me <laughs> and everybody else disagrees with me. <laughs> uh, they're all wrong and I'm right. <laughs> and maybe sometimes if you're a new teacher starting out, I remember thinking, gosh, I'm wrong. And, and you know, there's a teacher out there who's right. And my job is to get to be with them. But the reality is we're all inconsistent. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really hard way of assessing. Um, and I, the thing I always say is imagine you're given 100 essays to mark one weekend and then the next weekend you're given another 100 and six of them are the same. Do you really honestly, can you swear to yourself that you would give those six the same mark both times? Mm. And I, the reason I give that example is there was a study done on that you know, there was an actual research paper done on that. And it's quite naughty, really, because they were tricking the markers. They didn't tell them that there were some that were the same. And of course, even trained, experienced markers, they're not giving those six the same marks each time. So as I say, it's not just a problem of like, you've got one person who, who holds the truth and everybody else isn't agreeing with them. The problem is that even individuals find it hard to be consistent. Whereas with comparative judgment, we find much greater agreement, both internally, you know, agreeing with yourself and also with other people. And a, a method, if you want to try and sort of quantify it, the simplest sort of comparison we do is that with traditional marking, the kind of typical tolerance that you'll have is on a 40 mark, uh, mark scheme, you would have markers who would be disagreeing by plus or minus five marks. So you would say for a piece of writing that was given a mark, that's true score is 20 out of 40, markers actually might be giving it anywhere between 15 and 25. Right. But with comparative judgment, typically, we're able to squeeze that down to plus or minus one or two. Right. Okay. So that's in terms of what do you mean by agreement? That's the simplest way of comparing it. That mm -hmm. we just get much better agreement with comparative judgment than with traditional marking. Yeah. And you get a judgment scale, don't you, after the tasks? So a, a sort of numerical scale, which is always really interesting because that also applies... So one thing to be really clear about is you can use the website for your internal moderation. So you can set tasks just within your school itself, and that will generate a kind of a, a, a number. And a, I think, can you remind me, Daisy, how does the scale work in terms of the, you know, the highness or the lowness of the number and yeah. how reliable that, that means? Yeah, absolutely. So, so you're right. You can use it internally in your own school. And actually our website is free to use. So you can set it up and use it for internal tasks. And if you do that, you can set your scale to be what you want it to be. Yeah. So you can have it run from zero to 40, zero to 100, 50 to 150. You can do that. Obviously, if you do that, it's just within your own school. Exactly. So it's yeah. not nationally standardized. So then we run these big projects where we set the scale, we standardize everything. And the results you get do have like a national meaning. And on those, we have a scale um, at primary and key stage three. Our scale runs from about 300 to 700. And we've also converted each point on the scale to a writing age. So we can say, like, for example, if you get a, a scale score of 520, I think that's a writing age of about, um, you know, eight years, six months, something like that. Uh, so, you know, our scale can seem a bit abstract, 
but where we've converted it into the writing age, that gives it a bit of meaning as well. So every pupil will get their, their writing will get a score on that scale. And we also tell you the reliability of your task. Yeah. So if you want to know, actually have people, have my teachers agreed on this task, we'll give you, you get a metric that goes from zero to one that tells you the extent to which you've agreed. Yeah. So if you're getting scores, you know, reliability of 0.85, 0.9, that means your teachers are in really close agreement. That was the bit I was remembering. And I think, is it is it right that in those sort of traditional moderation techniques, it'd be around the 0.6? That's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. So we would say with traditional moderation, traditional marking, you're looking at reliability of about 0.5, 0.6. With comparative judgment, typically people will get in 0.85, 0.9 maybe even above 0.9. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, using that metric of zero to one, where one means perfect agreement and zero means kind of complete noise. Um, comparative judgment really outperforms it. And the, the nice thing is, as I say, yeah, when you, you, you've you seen it yourself, when you do your own judging, you can see your own reliability score. And that's such fun. Yeah, the more judgments you do, you'll have seen it, the, the better the reliability gets. So you can add judgments and watch your reliability go up. Just from my own personal experience, how I've started to use the website, we've been uh, using it for just over a year now. And obviously COVID sort of interrupted that a bit. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But we use the national tasks. So every year group gets a national task a year. Don't they? I'm talking about the primary. I'm sure it's fairly similar for secondary. Maybe you can say a bit about that in a moment. But on top of that, we put one internal task for each year group um, during the year as well, because we just find one internal and one one external is, is, is just a lovely balance to, you know, really helpful snapshots of where we are during the year. But that internal task is great because you know, we will often have maybe two year groups having done a task at the same time. So the easy way for us to organise it is if year six had a national task, a particular period of time, year five would do that as an internal task as well. That's just the way we've worked it. And the same with three and four and one and two. And it's kind of been quite easy to organise our year and our assessment cycle around that. But what it means is when we come to do the judgment session, we split the staff, we have kind of half doing one and half doing the other. And it's such fun for me just nipping into each room and uh, sort of filling the teachers in at the end about what their reliability scales were. But actually, even the internal scores have been much higher than I expected them to be. They've been they've been fairly sort of similar to the kind of national scores that we get. So it, it is definitely yeah. better. And, and we talked about bias earlier. Mm. Our teachers do not assess their own writing, which is such a game changer and is that would you advise that that's something we've decided to do at first we let them just as they got used to it but then we you know year three do not go near year three's writing what's the benefits of that yeah so that's really interesting to hear from you how you're doing it you know and it's fascinating to see how schools you know the sort of best way they 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 evolve for it we tend to say in terms of who you get involved with the judging our sort of broad recommendation is get as many teachers involved as you can yeah because you want as many opinions as possible and we really recommend getting teachers. We definitely recommend getting teachers from outside the year group to judge. Yes. Now, some schools, they'll say, actually, no, I just want my year three to judge my year three. We would say get everyone judging everything, because then what you can try and do is to build a whole school understanding of good writing. Yeah. But you're saying, well, this isn't just good writing that the year three teachers think is good writing in year three, that we're getting everyone to look at everything. And you know what? It's useful for year six to see what's happening in year one and for year one to see what's happening in year six. But what's interesting you said there, you said, actually, you're getting lots of people to do the judging, but you're not having the year freeze judging the year three. You're getting everyone else yeah. to judge it. I mean, that's really interesting. Yeah, because I mean, that totally, I mean, just obviously for people who don't know how the system works, all the work is anonymized. But in a primary school, if you've got teachers judging, they will recognize the handwriting of the children. They, they will know their children if they teach them. So you're absolutely right. If you've got um, year three judging year three and they teach them, they, they will probably spot, know which child it is. So, yeah, that's really interesting. You're saying let's not have that. And then it's just totally anonymized. People totally won't know. So yeah, I find that, that fascinating. What I'd be interested to know from you is, you know, what do then your, your year three teacher, you know, what do the teachers of that class make of the results? Do they come back and they go, oh yeah, this makes sense. They're thinking, oh, so-and-so I thought would do better. You know, that's really interesting to, to think about. That's been one of my favorite bits of it, actually. So when we first bought it and we sort of were mid-year and it was a bit chaotic, but we just knew we needed to do something different. 
And for the first task, because everyone was a bit petrified and it was something different, we, we put people in their comfort zone. We allowed them to be part of the assessment team that did their own work. And I should state at this point, we're a two-form entry primary. Um, so when we split the staff in half, there's still lots and lots of people judging. So we have lots on, on you know, each year group's uh, sort of judging session. I think if I was in a very small school, I would want to do what you said and have everybody doing everyone's task um, just for numbers. But yes, on that first time when we allow people to judge their own writing, exactly what you, you said happened, you know, oh, I know his handwriting. I couldn't get it out of my head that he's one of my greater depth writers. And there was definitely that bias, you know, as hard as they mm. were trying not to let it affect them, they were open about the fact that they just couldn't kind of block it out. Since moving to only judging other people's writing, yeah, those conversations with those year group teachers have been really good. So the, the way we manage it as, as a system is in come all the sort of results or data and for the internal tasks, what, what, what we've done, because obviously there's no national scale applied. You've just got your own internal scale. So judgments as in uh, maybe we'll get to this in a bit and why there's a, you know, limits to these absolute judgments of working towards and expecting and so on. But, but myself and another member of the SLT sit with the ranked scores because you get this kind of rank of kind of top to bottom in the year group. And we look at where we would perhaps apply the cutoff of who's sort of on track for those different judgment so to speak based on our own professional judgment experience of teaching the top end of primary a lot and knowing where they've got to get to and so on and then we will go and have a meeting with that year group say the year three team and we'll say okay so look this is how people have, have ranked your your kids what do you make of it what do you make of where we've put the cutoffs so they've kind of been removed from that initial process completely but now the powerful bit's happening which is the dialogue about it and sometimes it's wonderful they go wow they've put James up in the top five I, I wouldn't have necessarily thought of him at that uh, as that sort of capable as a writer and then we go well let's look at it why did people put James up in the top five and then they go oh yeah actually you know he he's got something going on there that I've not really noticed enough and actually what you get there is a shift of expectation so actually have I have I am I expecting enough of James you know because completely anonymously half my staff are telling me that he's one of my strongest writers and yes it's a snapshot in time it's not you know, he might have had a great day and might not be performing like that in every task, but it does give you a taste of what some kids are capable of. So our staff have really liked it. They've been really positive about that. And in a way, I think there's something quite liberating about not having to let your own emotional investment get in the way of your judgment. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how 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 it's worked for us. And similarly, with the external tasks, when that data comes in and they're ranked, we we obviously then don't have to. Well, we do still look at where the judgments are that have come from the No More Marking website. And we we have a bit of professional dialogue about that because that's nuanced. And maybe we should talk about that in a moment around those working towards expected labels. But but the same thing happens, a really quality dialogue with those teachers about what the data is telling us. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of how it's been looking. It, it works really well. That's really good to hear. And, and, and fascinating as well that you're saying, you know, often it is the dialogue after you get those that can be really interesting and we will always say, you know, you probably will in terms of when you look at the rank order, you know, yeah, um, 80 to 90 percent of the, those you will agree with. And, and that's as it should be. You know, you'd expect that. Yeah. But you will get it will throw up these interesting ones like you say, you know, look, James, why is this? Um, yeah. And that's a good thing. You know, that's a good thing uh, that almost if you had a measure that totally agreed with exactly what the class teacher for, you know, kind of what would be the point. So it's very interesting to get those differences and to triangulate and think what's happening there. And then, of course, as you say, on top of that, when you take part in a national window, the other thing you get, which is very hard for any individual teacher or school to do, is an understanding of where your pupils sit on the national scale. Yeah. And that's the thing that's exceptionally hard for any teacher, however experienced, however well trained, to be able to do. And again, that's where the benefit of us having kind of 10,000 teachers from 1,000 schools kind of pulling together uh, you know, that's where that, that benefit comes in. We should probably talk about that, shouldn't we? So schools love <laughs> absolute judgments, even though we've talked about the difficulty of them and how changeable children are really as well from one day to the next. But ultimately, schools want to get a sense in any writing assessment on whether children are on track to achieve certain judgments. There's issues with that in that there are no absolute kind of rubrics for that in lots of year groups anyway. But how does the system kind of try and work with that and support schools to at least have a sense of where the children are? You said they're ranked. So we do lots of left and right picking of which pieces are writing better. Our children get ranked in an, for the national task with sometimes 20, 30,000 other children or more. 
and then where's the how do you decide or how does the system decide where the kind of cutoffs are for for on track for expected or greater depth and so on and what the limitations of those labels yeah absolutely so what we do is as you say first step get all the judgments done which in many cases in the big projects we run will be you know hundreds of thousands pushing up to a million judgments i think wow so get all those judgments done and then we combine all those judgments together as i say to create a measurement scale and put all the people onto the measurement scale and you know, I think a simple way of thinking about it is, as you said, to think about it, you know, as, as a rank order. But we do always emphasize it, it is a lot more than that, because if all you had was a rank order, all you would have would be like one, two, three, four. And what we also give you, because the measurement scale is more sophisticated than that, we can give you an idea of like the gaps in between students. So, you know, if the gap between your first piece and your second piece is actually sometimes you might see it's 10 times as big as the gap between the second and third. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a kind of more nuanced sort of a, a way of doing that, you know, that measurement scale. So, so the first step is the measurement scale. And then the second step is we essentially kind of draw lines on the measurement scale to award the greater depth expected standard working towards. Yeah. So we do this in the big national projects. First step, we check to see are all our participating pupils nationally representative. Hmm. And because we have such big projects, they always are. If they're not, you know, if it happens that one one time we run one and it isn't, we can just adjust. But because we get such big numbers, they always are nationally representative. So they have been so far. And that makes it quite simple is that then we can say, well, look, we've got a big nationally representative group of pupils participating in this. We can then apply national statistics. Mm -hmm. So obviously I haven't been uh, writing moderation for a couple of years now, but we go back to 2019. The last year there was national writing moderation. And we say, well, in the government's own writing moderation process in year six, how many pupils got greater depth? And it was 20%. So what we say is, well, we'll award the top 20% of our pupils greater depth too. And we feel confident in doing that because we know we've got a nationally representative group of pupils. So when a pupil gets greater depth in one of our reports, what the simplest way of thinking about that is that means they've come in the top 20% of a large nationally representative group of pupils. Yes. And... The other thing to note about that is our assessments take place at different times in the year. Obviously, that 20% figure is when the government are doing their end of year uh, uh, strategy. Yes. End, end, of, end of year analysis. So obviously, because we will give 20% even in uh, November, October, it does mean that um, often our grades will look a, a bit generous. Yeah. Because we're kind of taking an end of year percentage and applying it to whatever point in the year we do it. But we're honest about that. And, and the best way of thinking about it is it's probably therefore a bit more of like a predicted grade. Yes. Uh, of like, you know, where you would expect this student to be at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. So it is, it is sort of generous in that sense, but it's very consistent. You know, it's consistent across all the local authorities. It's consistent across all of our schools and it's consistent over time. You know, that consistently in our assessments, the top 20% are getting greater depth. Yes. So if you're making a comparison, you're comparing kind of like with like. So that's how we do it. Um, and as I say, we've been running it for that process for about three or four years now, which gives us some really interesting historic data too, particularly at this moment in time where we're seeing some very unusual and unexpected results because of all the kind of disruption we've had. Yeah. And the two things I would say about that, one is that that numerical scale that you talked about is so helpful because within a band where I've got, let's say, seven children in a year group that have been awarded the greater depth grade, I know that this one is sort of leaps ahead of, of this one a bit further down in terms of how secure that is. So you have some great conversations then with the teachers, as I spoke about earlier, about these kind of cusp children. So, oh gosh, James is sort of just in that band being called Greater Depth, but no more marking made the cutoff at whatever number and he's he's like one above that so he's got that potential hasn't he so what's going to be what's going to stop James potentially achieving that so actually that's a really useful conversation because then you start talking about who's sort of really secure within that band and who's a bit shakier and I think you're right it's more like a predicted or has potential to or is on track for but within that range you're 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 still talking about that you can still have nuanced conversations using the numerical data about how secure they are. Absolutely. And you've hit on something really important there, which we're very keen to stress, which is we give you the greater depth working towards expected standard, but we're not massive fans of that approach. Mm. And the reason we're not massive fans of that approach is any grading system distorts. Yeah. And the kind of the worst distortion is from three part grading systems. Yeah. Because three grades is not that many. Mm -hmm. Pupils don't come neatly prepackaged in three grades. You know, whether you call them level three, four or five, whether you call them working towards expected standard grade depth, whether you call them emerging, expected, exceeding, pupils do not come in those packages. 
And actually, pupil performance is continuous. Mm-hmm. There aren't sudden breaks between one stage and another. Yeah. Um, and I think that when you have this three-part grade system, it is quite distorting. It makes you think, oh, my goodness, my pupils have made this big leap from one grade to the next. Whereas actually, and this actually goes beyond comparative judgment, this is just true of all uh, kind of attainment, it's a smoother continuum. Yes. And a pupil, all, all a grade is, is just an arbitrary line that's been drawn on a continuum. So when a pupil moves from working towards to expected standard, they may not have made a big leap. They may have just gone up one mark. Yeah. Um, and and, and, and the, the other thing with that is, is that often a pupil can make enormous progress but stay within a, a, a grade. Yes, that's true. You see that in working towards, and it can be really quite, quite sad because you can see a pupil who's made enormous progress, mm. kind of like not being able to write to being able to write really quite well, Yeah. but they still haven't got into expected standard. So you're saying to a pupil who's made tremendous progress, who's worked really hard, you're still working towards. Yeah. And I think that's really quite demotivating for, mm-hmm. for the people and for, the, for, for, for teachers. Whereas what we can show you is, my goodness, that pupil may have made a hundred scale score improvement. Mm. So they may still be in the same grade, but they've really improved. On the flip side, you might have a pupil who's gone from expected standards to greater depth, but they've only moved up two points. Yeah. You just have more more nuance, more understanding, I think, with the underlying scaled score. Yeah, I think that's a healthy message about those judgments. And I think as, as a website, you, you've got those three broad categories that you sort of provide for us. But I think work the working towards category is probably the one that I think you have to have the most nuanced conversation about, particularly. So we've got one cohort who are really fascinating sort of makeup because they're sort of there are typical thirds so there are about a third of them that consistently work at greater depth there's about a third that working the expected but the third that are working towards aren't they're they're working towards their pre-key stage they're below there's high levels of SEN so we have to have when they do a writing assessment there's about a third that will be called working towards but actually what we do is we have a good conversation about that third and we go actually there's some kids there that are quite clearly uh, sort of below uh, their year group or pre-key stage. Absolutely. And and that's not hard to sort of use that initial data and then just have a bit of professional discussion about it. What I find is no more marking cuts out like 90% of the FAFA writing assessment. There's still that really valuable place to have a professional conversation with people that have a bit more expertise in writing and assessment. Yeah, I mean, that's a lovely way of thinking about it. You know, yeah. cutting out 90% of the FAF, that's certainly you know, my experience too. And yeah, absolutely on the working towards. I mean, I think, yeah, the difference between a people at the bottom are working towards and people at the top is enormous. Mm. Um, and, and that's what I'm saying, you know, in a sense, like, is it useful to put all of those people to give them the same, the same label? So what we can see, you can see with us is just see, um, you know, the differences between them and just have a bit more nuance around that. Great. So we talked about various benefits and and I did want to make a point of, of what you touched on earlier about the uh, mixed phases judging together. That's been brilliant in my school. So having my year one teachers looking at year six writing and vice versa is a real benefit. What, what we find is that if they're really judging completely out of their confidence areas, we have sort of provided not a full on rubric, but a bit of a flow chart really of where to sort of prioritize your first element of comparison. And then if those things are really similar with both children, here's what you might look at next. Is that good practice? Is that the sort of thing you would advise? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we have a guide on our website too, of like a guide for judges, particularly for judging the first time, like what to think about. You know, often what we'll say is some of the judgments will be really obvious. Yes. And you'll be able to make them quite quickly. And you probably, you know, even if you're judging out of your year group, it'll be pretty straightforward. Yeah. And there'll be others which are tougher. Mm. Um, and for those, yeah, you might want to start to think about um, what, what are some of the, the kind of um, the details that I should be thinking about? What are some of the things I should be focusing on? So I, I think absolutely. And I think the nice thing about comparative judgment is, you, you know, whereas with a traditional rubric, you often end up, if you give guidance like that, people end up understandably kind of picking at what every word in it means and getting quite pernickety. Mm. With, compar- with comparative judgment, you can give guidance like that, but still keep it fairly broad. Oh, yeah. And trust people to interpret. So you can just say something like, look, you know, um, you can say something like, you know, has it got a, a good flow? Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. in a traditional rubric would be not very helpful at all. But with comparative judgment, I think, you know, people can then interpret that and we'll make the judgment based on it. And you can even just be quite broad things about, you know, a thing we see again and again, a sentence structure. Yes. So that really um, is a major factor. So you can just say, look, you know, is the sentence structure secure? And, and that would be a nice thing for people to think, if I can't make my mind up instantly, let's have a little look at the sentence structure oh okay yeah and then they can click and move on without getting kind of bogged down in um you know how many errors can i spot kind of thing yeah yeah they can but they they so you so you can you can give guidance like that 
um, still keep it fairly broad and trust that it, it will be useful for people. I'll have to send you my flow charts and you can tell me what you think, because they are broad. They're sort of three or four points that are kind of big hitters like that um, that, that we just encourage people to look at if they're a bit stuck. But you're right vast majority of the time you look at the two pieces and within seconds it's very obvious exactly exactly okay so have you had other schools kind of report particular benefits to you about this way of assessing writing and has the feedback been just as positive at all age ranges because I'm coming at it from a primary perspective but you use this right across the age ranges yeah yeah we do so um I think this year what's been very interesting um this year and last year is um more and more interest obviously at, at GCSE at secondary given all of the disruption you've got at GCSE. So we have quite a few schools using it this summer to help with GCSE with the, the centre assessed grades. So that's a, a big thing happening there. And we've also got a, a really big, relatively new Key Stage 3 project. Uh, and actually what's interesting is we've linked our Key Stage 3 and primary projects. And that's been really fascinating too, because we can then start to measure kind of progress across uh, the phases uh, you know, help with transition, things like that. We can do that in a more sophisticated way. And there's actually sort of relatively little really good high quality data out there on that. So that's really powerful to be able to have that. Um, so, yeah, a key stage three project that links up, you know, syncs up with primary. And then GCSE, as I say, yeah, lots of people interested in using it this summer to help help give them some guidance for CAGs. So, yeah, we, we definitely see kind of across the board at primary and at secondary it's it's you know it, it has it absolutely has its benefits and the other thing I think we see which we're, we're really keen on too is is this kind of almost the the sort of second order benefit of I say well what what impact does this have on teaching and learning what impact does it have on the way you teach does it help you get away from some of these tick boxes approaches to, to, to marking that that's something we're really interested in too lots of schools combining comparative judgment with whole class feedback yeah. which we, we we find is great as well and you know what we try and do is to share a lot of that best practice on our website. So, you know, definitely send us your flow chart. You know, we'd love to be able to be someone we could, we could maybe, you know, show to schools to give them an idea. You know, we're just trying to share best practice between schools, uh, particularly with those things about how you feedback students, what you do to sort of, you know, tweak your curriculum, you know, th things like that. I think that's a great point. You know, ultimately good assessment. Yes, it will give you some summative judgments, but if it's really changing what people kind of do or focus on that's got to be great and as a school that's had historical underperformance at key stage two with writing for example for our lower school to see the kind of writing at the top end of the school where perhaps for example we've still got a bit of a legacy of children's basics holding them back you know they're adventurous in their vocabulary they're doing lots right but this is still the thing holding them back and that's partly why we've brought in the sounds right phonics scheme and that's going to make a big impact in the future but for our lower school to realise that, that that becomes such a limiting factor in those children's attainment later on, I think it's got to be a good thing for them to think that they, they can't leave this year without having secured that basic, you know, that 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 must be a priority. So yeah, it does have implications for, for teaching and learning for sure. So the last year has been very interesting and I've enjoyed reading your blogs. And I would say if, if anyone buys into the No More Marking website, you must read Daisy's blogs because I've occasionally sort of forgot they're there. And there's been some really helpful insights about the data and what it's telling us. What have we discovered about children's writing and the impact of COVID? Yeah, great question. We found this really fascinating and in, in some ways like unexpected what we found. So just to set a bit of context, you know, we've been, I think we've had two full years of data before COVID. Mm. So in 2018-19 and 19-20, we ran a full year of assessment. Our 19-20 assessments had all finished quite, quite fortunately by, by the end of February. So we had two full years of data on primary, primary writing before COVID hit. And what that's giving us now is a really good benchmark to look back to, to say, well, relative to a pre-COVID world, how have these students done? Mm. And, and, you know, what was interesting is in 2018, 19 and 1920, we saw really consistent scores year on year. So what I'm saying is the year threes in 18, 19 got a very similar average score to the year threes in 1920. Right. And that was the same for kind of all the year groups. So, you know, what we're saying is before COVID, we were seeing something that was relatively consistent. What's happened since COVID? And very interesting, what, what we've seen is year sevens have, have really fallen backwards relative to where we'd expect them to be and also relative to where they were in year six so we found that year sevens in september were, were not writing as well as they had been when they were the year sixes at the end of february mm. okay so that's a, a, a big fall, fall back that's really Huge. dramatic we found something similar with year fives so we assessed yes. year fives in november and we found they'd fallen back they were not writing as well as they were in january when they were in year four okay yeah. so um i think in year seven we found the kids had gone back by 22 months 
in year five, we found they've gone back by 15 months. So mm. when I say, you know, they've gone back by 15 months, I'm saying year five's in November. They're kind of writing at the, the standard that normally we'd expect of a pupil kind of at the end of year three, beginning of year four. Mm. Okay, that's what we're talking about by a 15 month fall. But then very striking, year three, they were at the expected standard. Yes. They hadn't gone forward or backwards. They were kind of exactly where we'd expect them to be previously. So uh, this is the fascinating thing about data. It doesn't always tell you, it doesn't always form neat patterns. So yes, we saw the sevens and the fives going back, perhaps more dramatically than we would have predicted. Yeah. And then based on that, we'd have thought, gosh, well, everyone's gone backwards, but actually the year threes hadn't. Mm. So and then almost it throws up more questions than it answers, doesn't it? Of course it, it does. Why? Yeah. What's happening in year three? that's different is it something to do with younger students being at home that parents can manage things more i don't know is it you know what what is going on it's hard to know my theory daisy just for what it's worth as a primary teacher is it's that three four english curriculum that is so packed full of so much i mean the way i see a writing curriculum in 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 um, primary schools is you know clearly lots and lots of basics sorted in key stage one but it's fairly narrow in its remit as to what needs to be covered then three and four is four in particular is jam-packed with grammar and sentence level work and you know that's where they really start to kick on in terms of their adventurousness with sentence structure And, and I can completely see how those year fives who missed most of year four would come out with still very basic sort of sentence structure and whatnot, where those year threes probably, you know, carried on writing like a sort of late year two, early year three. So that would be my, my thought. I don't know whether you've had the same sort of line of thinking. No, that's, that's really interesting. That is really interesting. And, and one of the things we're trying to sort of find, you know, what research is out there is there's some research, I think, in maths, which shows that it kind of almost takes like a year or two to really solidify a maths concept. Yes. Yeah. So that everything you've learned in kind of the last sort of 18 months is relatively shaky and fragile. Yeah. And um, so what we're thinking is there's something similar in writing Mm. that perhaps, as you say, yeah, in some of these later years, things you've learned for the last 18 months are relatively fragile and and are more easily forgotten. So, Mm. So is it something like that? Yeah. I mean, that's really, really interesting. And as I say, it's something we want to just keep looking at and, Obviously, then after Easter, we've got more assessments coming up and we'll be able to get hopefully more of a handle on it and see, see more what's happening. Yeah, it's interesting. And like you say, more questions than answers. And, you know, I was thinking about our year three cohort because it was actually we've noticed pretty much the opposite for maths um, in terms of the school pattern. Our older children have been fairly stable. And I think there's something there in sort of more core concepts and and same for reading I should say that if if you've kind of got certain prerequisite knowledge and and skills that are kind of there and fairly solid you can kind of manage without dropping back too far but you know if I take year three um, maths where they were really shaky actually year two in again thinking about the curriculum there's some really core concepts that you have to get right in year two for them to go on and be successful in math so I think part of it's curriculum stuff but part of it is just going to be a bit of a mystery isn't it and no absolutely and you know as you say to some extent we may never know and you know we'll never be able to hope you know thankfully ever be able to run a sort of controlled trial on it it's all just been this this huge sort of you know natural disruption isn't it so yeah there'll be some things that remain kind of unanswered I guess for us as well the interesting thing now is you know what can we do to to to, to make those gains back you know and exactly. to get up and that's where we're interested too like what are the schools doing who are going to have most success at that that's where it'll be interesting as well yeah and just so helpful as a school because you get for the national tasks you get these reports quite quickly after you're judging I think within a week or two and they just really give you a sense of where your cohort sits with this very big um, representative national um, sample and that's just really useful that's useful to be able to talk to governors about that's useful to be able to talk to staff about particularly if the the teachers are panicking that oh god they have gone back a bit but you go actually they have gone back a bit but do you know that so year fives for example as had gone back a few months and we were like oh no they've gone back a few months and then we saw the national picture and went exactly. oh okay we've done all right <laughs> exactly. yeah so i think that that those that data is always useful but yeah it's even more useful now yeah. because i think if you're not in that world you could be looking at it and going my goodness as you say like my year fives have really gone back they're really struggling here but if you see that in the context of well nationally they've gone back 15 months maybe you're thinking okay it's, it's not great but at least we know you know actually there's something we're doing that has been you know been working you know relative to, to, to what else is out there so 
I think, yeah, just giving you the ability to set your data in context is, is really important. It is. Uh, Daisy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about uh, writing assessment and no more marketing. I do wholly recommend it. Um, I'm not being paid here to plug this. <laughs> I really do think it's brilliant and I think it can save people so much time. I think it's more reliable. I think it does improve teacher subject knowledge and pedagogy. And yeah, I love anything that reduces unnecessary workload. So how can people find out more if they're interested? So we have lots of webinars. I always say the best place to start is with a webinar. So we have a lot of free webinars where we give you an intro. There's a lot of recordings of those on our, on our, on our website. You can see a recording straight away. But if you, I recommend taking part in one live. So have a look on our events page and maybe you can share, share the link of, of this. But our events page has all our latest webinars. Uh, it, will, it will have them there. And we tend to run, you know, um, a few every month. So there's normally one. We, we will do ones that focus on primary, ones that focus on secondary. So I'd recommend signing up for one of those because the great thing about them is you can take part in, in some judging. Yeah. We get you to take part in a demo task and see the results. So I would say if you're interested, that's the best place to start. They take about an hour um, and we normally run them at f- from 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Brilliant. And I'm very happy if anyone wants to contact me and just see how we've run it in a primary. It's not that it's perfect, but I'm very happy to share that if it benefits anybody. Thanks, Daisy. Great to talk. Brilliant. Thanks, Russell. I enjoyed that, Russell. I know this is a system you've been using for some time now, but what did you take away from the interview with Daisy? Well, there were there were lots of things that were really good to talk about, and I enjoyed revisiting the why behind comparative judgment. So Daisy gave those three reasons, didn't she? There was the kind of time or efficiency argument. You know, a lot of traditional moderation is, yeah, pretty full-on process, not very efficient. Then she talked about the reliability and something that I hadn't really thought about so much before was this idea that uh, the research shows that teachers aren't even reliable with themselves. So if I got (laughs) you to moderate a piece of writing, you know, a week apart, you yourself might judge it differently. And that's not about you being unfair or untrustworthy. That's just because we're humans and we're, we're not that consistent. We're not robots. And then thirdly, the kind of validity argument. And I liked how she spoke about the issue with rubrics because me and you have both been year six teachers and we know how the kind of tick box approach can affect, particularly if you're preparing for moderation and you get that idea of the tail kind of wagging the dog. So the framework that we're being assessed against becomes almost the curriculum, which it shouldn't be. And that's not how it's intended, but I think assessment quite often does that. So, yeah, it was good to revisit the why. I've been using the the system, the No More Marking system for over a year now. And I think it's good to revisit why am I actually doing this? Why did we buy into this? Why do we think this is better for our staff? Uh, what were some of your takeaways having listened uh, back to it, Steve? Yeah, thank you, Russell. Because uh, as you know, my school, we're, we're really at the infancy of using comparative judgment. It's something that we really want to jump on boards because uh, one of my takeaways actually was looking at unconscious bias. And mm. there will always be an element and we always go into uh, moderation and ha- knowing where we believe that child to be from what we know of the child rather than just that piece of writing or pieces of writing that we're looking at in a book you know you know so much more about a child and you know what they're capable of and yeah. and that will unconsciously seep through um so having a system in place such as comparative judgment will really allow for less of uh, unconscious bias and particularly when you're working with other people and they're looking at your books as well and and I like how you said um with your year three you didn't let them actually have a look at their own writing and a, a brave decision but uh, probably a noble one nonetheless because you will get so much more out of the the moderation process is that right yeah I was gonna ask you then Steve how how do you think you'd find that um to sort of be in the room next door judging I don't know another year group and knowing that your year sixes are being judged by you know your colleagues would you find that tricky would you find that kind of liberating that you don't have to be in there a bit of both but probably very tough at the beginning I think it's something I'd actually have to train my brain into because uh I'll be sitting there looking at someone else's work but thinking about how my children are getting on with their their own (laughs) moderation because um as you know i am passionate about my class that i teach and i i always feel oh you just want to say something if they said oh that he was only working towards instead of expected when you think hey i know that child so well okay but here's a really great point about that steve is they're not saying they're working towards or expected Mm. they're ranking so what they're doing is on their screen next door they've got if it's an internal task so i said in the episode that we, we do some internal where they're only being judged against their peers and then the national, they're against their peers and occasionally 
uh, you're judging sort of another school's piece of work. But yeah, all they're doing is clicking left and right. It's a bit Tinder. So that's a nice thing for you as teacher, because what they're not doing is making a fundamental judgment about the quality of your children's writing. They are inadvertently ranking them by just clicking left or right each time. So that kind of relieves some of that pressure of these kind of ultimate judgments that Daisy was saying are a bit of an issue in education, these really absolute judgments that are mm-hmm. yeah, tricky to come to kind of conclusions in a five, 10 minute activity. So they're just saying, is that one better? Or is that one better? And by the end, what you get is this, if it's an internal task, you get this list of your class ranked from sort of highest to lowest. And then depending on what the school does with it, as I said, in my school, myself and one of our assistant heads, we sit with that list and we decide where we feel the cutoff is for children that are on track for working towards expected for those internal tasks. So that sound a bit less scary than people making absolute judgments next door about your kids. Yeah, 100%. And actually, I'm so glad you said that because... If there's a reason to to use comparative judgment, it's got to be that. And what Daisy said about absolute judgment, yeah, you do. You escape from this. Yeah. Like when she said, someone walks in the door and you go, how tall are they? Uh, or you compare the height of two people. Then you've got comparative and you've got absolute. And if that's what's happening with work, then it's got to be a much better process. And, and when I think back to moderation as a whole, Daisy was spot on with what she said. It was so convoluted and so so long and lengthy there's so many stages to it to get what could be really unreliable data as well and then and what do you do with the data I was a real fan of that because when you're just comparing two pieces of work and saying which one is better then naturally you will have a an outcome that will be better for you to use and so Russell and what Daisy did say and something I picked up on when she said um children aren't just boxed into three categories there's not a working towards an expected a great step for such what what's your sense when you're using comparative judgment then how does this work yeah so with the national task so if you're using it for the national tasks they are ranked within well compared to the other what 50 60 000 kids depending on how many mm. have taken part and they do apply a, a statistical model that gives a kind of a cutoff for working towards expecting and greater depth. But as she said in the interview, they're kind of fairly limited in how much they can tell you those judgments. And I think Daisy acknowledged that they are there because schools want it. <laughs> schools yeah. do want those judgments. <laughs> but I think what she's keen to emphasise is that the kind of writing ages and the scaled scores that they get, which go right up into the five, six hundreds, depending on the age range, give you a more nuanced look at where those children are. So you might have within the expected judgment kids that have got a, a scaled score that's quite different. And and that's helpful because they always tell you in their reports where the cutoff is for expected if the cutoff was, I don't know, 524, I'm just making that up, and you've got a child who was given 525, you're like, oh, okay, they were really shaky in in that kind of expected bracket. But they've applied that statistical model, which is that nationally, I'm talking about um, primary here at the moment, but nationally around whatever 75% get to expected. So they apply the top 75% of their sample, which is nationally representative. They say they're on track for expected or more. So you've got to accept that a judgment that's applied like that is a little bit crude. And that's where those conversations after what you actually do with the data are much more important. So we take the report that's generated by um, no more marking for the national task and we go, okay, that's really helpful. We've got a sense of where these kids compare with the national sample. Where do we see the cutoff? Do we agree with this? And we have that kind of professional conversation. And what I'm assuming, Russell, then that when you, you set it up to do it after school or however you do it in the staff meeting, groups are looking at work, it's quite a liberating and powerful experience to get the, the outcomes from it. Oh, yeah. It's just so much more efficient. So just to walk people through the whole process, which we didn't talk much about, No More Marking has its own calendar for the year of tasks. And every year group has one national task a year. So that's a task where they're compared with a large national sample of children that are doing the same task in the same year group across the country. What we've done so that we we kind of said, okay, we want that and at least one other writing point in the year that we do an assessment snapshot of. So we do one national, one internal every year. So what we do is we group five and six, four and three, two and one. And we are just experimented with whether this could be useful uh, with any early writing as well, but we're not gone there yet. And let's say year two have a national task. Year one will do that same task as an internal task. And because we are a two-form entry school and we've got plenty of staff, what we then do is they do that writing activity at the same time. 
as Daisy said, it's really easy. You do it on some kind of scripted sheets that are scanned, scanned in and uploaded to the website. You then run your judging session in the week or so after you've done the writing. And what then happens is you split your staff, or this is how we do it. We split our staff. You don't judge your own, you judge a different year group. So you might have a bunch of year one, three, five, six staff doing one task and then all their year group partners doing the other. They'll judge the task just by doing their clicks left and right. And they don't really have any interaction during that. It's meant to be not, you know, I have to say no talking because I want them to <laughs> not influence each other. I, want, I don't yeah. want that bias to kick in. And then what you get is a reliability score at the end of that, which Daisy talked about, how consistent your staff are. And that's the same for the internal tasks. And then what you'll get, if it's a national task, you'll get a report from No More Marking a couple of weeks later, which is really good, really in-depth. It tells you about your pupil premium, tells you about your boys and girls and all sorts and how they compared with the national sample. If it's an internal task, you'll just get a, a downloadable spreadsheet in Excel, which will give you your kind of ranked scores, there won't be judgments with those, the internal ones. You have to apply that. You have to decide where the cutoff is, but that works really well for us. So what we then have is, I mean, in our own assessment system is actually just Excels that I've made. <laughs> so I have a tab for no more marking and there's a column for internal task. There's a column for a national task and we just pop that data in there. But I know lots of other information management systems. You could set that up just mm. a place to capture that data a couple of times a year. And it's just really helpful and it informs teaching because what happens is you have those conversations as we said in the interview like oh, okay James was on that cusp for greater depth and the teacher's like I never really realized he had that potential so then the conversation is so what does what does James need more of to ensure that he he, he consistently gets himself to that kind of um, level in his writing so so then it informs kind of expectations and planning yeah I mean what I'm hearing is so pleasant because gone could be the days where we have the traditional moderation policy where we set a task we, we mark it in depth we then mark it against the end of year expectations and the targets for the children we then moderate we then get feedback on the moderation <laughs> and then we get the data from the moderation that we then have to do something with and it's such a drawn out process and we're we're really sharpening the apps there and taking away any unconscious bias we're doing a lot with it and making it feel like a lot more simple and structured monitoring process yeah and I can only talk from my own experience I can't talk on behalf of anybody else but from my experience the data is just as reliable well more reliable than what we were doing before and teachers are going to me yeah spot on when they're looking at the spreadsheet mm. they might have one or two children they're like oh that's a bit of a surprise or they've put them a bit you know lower or higher than I thought they would but on the whole teachers going yeah <laughs> spot on wow. and, and you save loads of work and faff there and actually they've like you say they've almost been liberated from the pressure of making these absolute judgments about their own children who they know far too much about uh to, mm. to be able to be objective so yeah i think it's great yeah thanks Russell. that was really interesting there was one last point i wanted to pick up on and it was quite a scary headline but also really eye-opening and it was through the fallout from the pandemic when Daisy said that year seven, when looking at the statistics, they fell away by 22 months, year five fell away by 15 months, year three, largely where they still need to be, it just shows um, that there is a different provision to supply for all the children, depending on year group dependency and within year groups, etc. But what did you make of this? Was it quite a scary headline for you to hear or were you quite on par with where you felt it was going to be? Yeah, I I wasn't sure what to expect, uh, like anyone this year, in terms of what data was telling us. Certainly the picture in my school has been that our youngest children have been most affected. And I think Daisy's inclination and no more marking was that perhaps the younger year group were doing better because they'd be more supported at home. But actually, that wasn't what we saw in our school. We saw that our younger children, because they needed support at home, if it wasn't given, they fell way behind. And actually, it was our older children that seemed to muddle through okay with most of the online learning because they could be a bit more independent in accessing the devices so I was a bit surprised that one of the younger year groups year three had actually done so well in comparison to the older ones however when I thought about it as I said to Daisy my theory is that's to do with the English national curriculum and how much content is in three and four and I perhaps felt that 
you know the, the the standard that you need to get to for reasonably good year three writing isn't too enormous it's quite sort of you know you've been a year two teacher Steve you know where they need to get to it's a good standard but it's it's not absurd and then this year three four curriculum is hugely packed isn't it with grammar devices and so on so there's no surprise to me that the year five cohort who missed so much of year four were actually lacking loads of that and and appeared to have fallen hugely behind compared to year fives of the past and themselves yeah that makes sense to me about the year three four curriculum absolutely and I suppose we just have to adapt our provision over the next 12 months to see how we do them but what I must say, Russell, is that was an awesome interview. I'm gutted I wasn't there live for it, but it's quite nice to be on the other side of the fence as well to hear it as if a listener's hearing it. And I've taken a lot away from it. So um, I feel your message at the end was really important as well, that you are within this comparative judgment journey. And I think if anyone has any questions and queries about it, then I know you'd be brilliant at responding to them. So if anyone does want to get in touch with Russell and discuss comparative judgment, please do so. You can contact Russell via the Facebook group or, or Instagram or Twitter. And Russell is very good at responding quickly. Um, so do do that if you want to. And I know my school's on the beginning journey um, to comparative judgment, and I'm always using Russell's brain for this. So thank you, Russell. And I must say a massive thank you to Daisy. She was awesome, as I expected. And I, I just enjoy listening to her thoughts uh, on everything education related, but in particular, comparative judgments. So thank you both. Don't shoot the deputy.